Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Jennifer Waits. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Klein. And I'm Paul Reismandel. And on Radio Survivor, we're interested in not only audio, but also its history as well as preservation efforts. Along those lines, we've done a lot of episodes about archives, and we also have a strong passion for student-produced media, like high school and college radio. Today, we're going to have sort of an interesting intersection of the two as we focus on archives and student activism. Our guest, Lael Hughes-Watkins, is the founder of Project STAND, Student Activism Now Documented. Lael, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. I've been looking forward to this. So maybe let's just start by having you talk about what Project Stand is. Oh my gosh, do you want the long version of the show? <laughs> <laughs> you could do like a little Cliff's Notes version. Let's hear the version that makes you happy. I know. <laughs> um, well, we I, I think it could be defined as a really a radical grassroots effort um, with... Uh, organizations, uh, colleges and universities across the U.S., um, where we've come together, um, about 70 um, participants um, at this time. Um, we officially launched in the summer of 2017, um, where, we're, where we're working or have created a centralized um, space, um, digital space, um, where we're highlighting and advocating documents, uh, digital and analog, that highlights student activism specifically in marginalized communities. And we're looking at records in all formats. How has student activism been uh, been archived or documented in the past? What are, what are the different ways that you've seen it archived? Um, well, sh- it's probably no shock that most <laughs> of the records we have are tend to lean with uh, photographs or so, uh, print images um, textual documents. Um, although after doing a collection assessment, so as we get new members or with each member that we, um, that joins us, they're asked to do a collection assessment uh, survey. So they let us know what's in their holdings pertaining to uh, student activism. And so that also, again, includes letting us know what uh, type of format. So what is ex- was exciting to see or has been exciting to see um, is that we we are seeing that um, the somewhat non-traditional formats of documentation regarding student activism, we are seeing that institutions are looking at uh, documenting social media. Um, as we know, um, students aren't and haven't been for a really long time just organizing in those traditional formats, laying out their demands to their administration via the student newspaper, but they're also using their IG, their Instagram accounts, their Twitter accounts um, as a form of democratization, really to share their um, demands and needs and not necessarily through the lens of administrative spaces um, at their at their institution. So we're seeing um, an increase in some of our members uh, documenting records from those spaces as well. But we do have institutions that have highlighted, and I should have looked right before what the most recent numbers were, that we are seeing some content that has been documented within, in the AV format. Um, so audiovisual for, yeah, audio <laughs> for the non-archivist who might not, who might yeah. not be AV geeks like the rest of us. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. <laughs> um, but yes, and and even at 
So yes, primarily my hat being uh, the founder of Project Stand, but my other gig that that pays me <laughs> uh, being at the University of Maryland, what I'm interested in seeing is how student activism has been documented using looking at the AV format. We have a very um, long history with student radio with WMUC and there's a lot of, of AV there where over generations, you know, going back to the anti-war um, protests that and up, up till now where there have been so many interviews, very rich interviews that have been conducted, um, highlighting uh, various movements on campus that, that we hope uh, to get to make available hopefully soon. I mean, the pandemic has changed a lot of folks, uh, a lot of our schedules, um, but there's some very rich content from the, from the 60s, from the 60s, 70s, and 80s that I'm hoping that we can dust off and um, uncover. And a lot of our members also are starting to think about, well, what is it that's in our holding with respect to our radio stations um, as well? I have, well, I have to add that I, a number of years ago, I went to University of Maryland for the amazing exhibit and conference, Saving College Radio. Mm-hmm. And Laura Schnicker had put together this incredible exhibit about the history of WMUC and and even produced a CD that had a bunch of audio content on it from the past. So I'm, I'll be excited to hear more about, about that station, which I also got to visit and and. It was mind blowing. That was one of the only stations I've been to that had multiple floors. Or, well, it was sort of like multiple floors within it. So it had like a little perch, um, a record library that was up above kind of a catwalk. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, very, very cool station. Well, I was not fortunate enough to see the amazing exhibit that you're talking about. It was before my time. I, I, I had missed it, but I heard that that's probably one of the most popular exhibitions that came that have come out of uh, Special Collections University Archives at UMD. Yeah, and I know that University of Maryland has, you know, a whole bunch of audio and radio archives. So that's exciting that that you're there as well. I wanted to step back just a little bit and ask you why it's so critical. Why is it so critical now to preserve materials related to student activism? Is it is it because these materials have not been saved in the past? From a personal experience, um, when I I used to be a university archivist at Kent State University, obviously um, many of your uh, listeners uh, may be aware, obviously about the, the Kent State shootings and May Fourth, nineteen seventy, and that's a narrative that rings large um, at that at that institution, especially with the fiftieth now uh, anniversary passing us last year. And as I was going through those um, materials, I also wanted to know just in general what the the history of student activism um, at Kent State and and definitely with respect to other communities, specifically the uh, black students. And um, because I saw that they weren't uh, really present or had a serious um, interaction with the anti-war movement um, at that time. So I was wondering what was going on, what were the, what were the Black students doing um, at Kent State University. And I saw that a lot of documentation was not there. Um, the student newspapers were very helpful. The Daily Kent State was very helpful in identifying different occurrences that had um, transpired on campus. But when I was, as I was trying to dig and do these preliminary assessments, 
um, of various administrative papers, um, which is primarily a lot of times what University Archives collects, there wasn't a lot of documentation um, there um, for uh, like the Black campus movement that was very um, common um, late 60s, early 70s, where it was this huge push um, for the development um, of African-American studies departments or offices, increase in uh, Black students on campus, um, faculty and staff. And what did that look like at Kent State University? And there was not that, there was very few records um, available there. So seeing that this, that particular gap in the record that made me worried about what was taking place at that time. Um, so when I when I was at uh, Kent State, I'm seeing the birth of the of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I'm seeing this resurgence, um, just in student activism in general, um, taking place. Um, you have the Ferguson uprising that occurred, and you have students responding to that in real time on their campuses. And I was worried that well, if we didn't capture what happened in the '60s and '70s. Um, with black students or any or some of the other uh, marginalized communities, Latinx, um, Asian American, then that that's a problem that we may be dealing with now. Right. Um, yeah. Well, and what do you think happened in the past? Is it is it because the people doing the archiving were choosing not to archive that material? Where were uh, where did things fall apart? Do you think? Um, I mean, that's the. <laughs> <laughs> so historically, um, university archives, um, if, if, if you do any kind of investigation, you, you will see that traditionally it has been the administrative papers. It's the lens of the president and other um, academic offices and centers on campus that we focus on with respect to the acquisitions that we focus on. So just student life in general has really historically um, not been on the radar um, of institutions. So probably not within the last 15 years or so that you really saw start to see um, this this push to try to get um, to put more focus or add focus to student life records and development of student life um, at campuses. Um, so I will definitely fault that as being um, part of the problem. But the other issue is just traditionally um, institutions, specifically PWIs, also known as predominantly white institutions, just did not have a focal point on trying to get these underdocumented um, communities. So there's a, there's a failure there. Um, and so then institutions have been trying, those that actually feel it's a, a venture that they think they should be doing, which everyone should, um, but those that have decided to, to, to put that as part of their collection development, um, they're having to play catch up. I think that's uh, what you're talking about relates a lot to college radio too, in that if institutions weren't archiving materials from student life, like college radio stations, then that material, you know, hasn't existed in, in the archives. So, mm -hmm. so how in both cases, um, as far as, you know, some of these protest movements where, underrepresented, you know, students were participating. How are you finding the materials now and getting them into the archives if they weren't in the archives in the first place? So th th there's the rub. <laughs> That's the challenge. Because if we, if the institution hasn't had a, hit, a long history or any history of reaching out to students and definitely these vulnerable communities, and then when we have these movements like 
um, in the aftermath of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor. And then you see, well, this is in the news now. Oh, now it's like sexy, quote unquote, sexy to come and get these records and, and want to reach out to the protesters that's been out there for, for a really long time. And now you want um, to speak with me and now you want to talk with me. Um, and so th that's traumatic um, for, for folks to decide that some of these institutions want to come speak to them um, in this in that period of pain and trauma um, when they haven't done the work to really be allies or collaborators um, with with these student um, groups. And so there's a lot of, there's a reckoning and a lot of reconciliation that has to take place in, in um, bringing meaningful collaborations um, to occur. That's that's super challenging. And, and so how are a lot of your efforts, I mean, is that part of the reason why Project Stand is its own project that's apart from an institution? Exactly. Um, you, you said it uh, spot on. Um, because um, Project Stand received its first grant in 2018, uh, yeah, 2018, um, an IMLS grant. And with that grant, we part of the opportunities, opportunities we were able to engage in was to have these symposiums around the country. We had about four. Um, one was at Robert A. Uh, Robert Woodruff Library in AUC in Atlanta. Um, another one was at University of Rhode Island. The third one was at Chicago State University. And the uh, fourth one was at Arizona State University. Um, the goal of those symposiums was to center the voices of student organizers and really hear um, from them um, what are some of the challenges that, that you're having? What is it to be a student organizer now? Do you think about the preservation of your work, your legacy? Um, and what is your relationship with archives? Do you even know what the, do you even know where your university archive or your college right. is? Um, and, and so we, it was very eye-opening to hear from the phenomenal students um, that, we, that we heard over, over the year and a half. Um, that we did that work. And one of the things that really stood out was that we need to just get to know you, you as the, the college or university archivist, because they are very aware and very clear um, that we are extensions of our institutions. Um, but because a lot of times, obviously, they're having these contentious relationships with these institutions, um, they need to see you separate and apart in order to have a conversation. Like, yes, we know big picture, you work here. But for me to, to be comfortable and, and, and engage with you, I need to just be able to talk to you. And I don't want to, they didn't want to see us as some arm or some PR arm um, of, the, of the institution. And that was really um, important. Um, and that was said across all four institutions. That's basically what a lot of the students were saying. And so the, the fact that Project Stand is this consortium of folks that who are um, archivists um, at different at various institutions who believe um, in this approach um, to archives and building relationships with students in this way, and acknowledging acknowledging their agency as students and being transparent and believing in the ethical documentation um, of these communities and acknowledging that. You know what? That's another thing we learned. Sometimes students aren't going to want to give stuff to us, and we have to be okay with that. Um, 
Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about college radio stations who are often suspicious of the institution and really sometimes hold on to their archives because they're afraid they're afraid that it might disappear. So are those some of the same challenges that you hear? Um, yes, disappeared. Um, the, the, the possibility of those records being weaponized against them. Um, you've probably heard some of the conversation that was happening over the summer um, that authorities were using images from these protests to go after some of the protests. Yeah. Um, so, right. So we have to worry about that as students. If we're for the students, if we're working with these students, we're not trying to cause further harm. Yeah. I wonder, um, Lyle Hughes Watkins, you know, as an archivist, I'm wondering if you can make a positive case since um, obviously, I mean, the negative case is extremely um, compelling, right? That, that, that the authorities would use archives of student activism to punish students uh in any number of ways that we can imagine. What, what is the positive case for having these materials preserved? There are so many. And so thank you also for asking that question. Um, students will come in um, undoubtedly sometimes to um, say, you know what, we're about to have an anniversary. Our, our, our student org has been around for 50 years or 25 years or 10 years. Um, and then when they come in and say, oh, well, what photographs do you have? Do you have this? I read in the student paper that we used to do at some event, blah, blah, blah. And then we have to go look in our records and come back and say, we have nothing. <laughs> or we, we only have a pamphlet or, you know, it's some sad, scant series of pamphlets <laughs> that we don't have. And then this whole event, you know, celebrating their their history is boils down to not much because there wasn't this um, active archiving um, that took place for, for various reasons. Um, and that's any, and, and if we go just there, that could be any student group. Um, so when you build those relationships um, and the students trust you, you have the opportunity to build these great archives so that students can come back um, and look at the records and look at the history of their institution and find out that, you know, we used to do potlucks in the summer, in the winter. <laughs> um, we used to do all of this organizing um, and feeding, doing food drives, or we had a president, someone who's a president um, of our organization that now um, is some big humanitarian or someone who's on some famous TV show. So it's, it's it, it, that's a positive test case that students can come back and look at a very rich history um, if they're willing to trust um, their university archive. And sometimes outside of just these amazing um, moments and cultural moments that they've had with the, in the development of the student group, um, sometimes also students can come back and look at those um, records and and help hold their institution accountable and say, you know what, in 1975, you said you were going to do this and it's X years later and you still haven't done it. Or um, this type of organizing helped get the attention of the university. So maybe that's a tactic we should use again. So, I mean, there's so many different reasons um, where having your, your organizational archive can be beneficial to yeah. I, I can see a world in which I, th I just read a recent article about activism in the city where I live. And um, I can see that if if you actually have 
hope um, that that there is a future and that there is um, that that change is possible, then the archive becomes valuable. It's it's when there's a lack of hope that you might even imagine that the archive uh, doesn't doesn't hold any value for the future. Yes. Um, because the archive, you can go back to, well, I, that can be both, because sometimes you can go back in the archive, like, how are we dealing with the thing that was 100 years ago? Right, right. What can be, but also, you can go back in the archive and say, wow, look at how we move forward in this, on this point, in, the, in this moment. Um, and so there's, it, it can be, it can be inspirational and hopeful, and it can also provide you with a a, a blueprint of challenges too. Yeah, I definitely wonder, think there's uh, a lot of inspiration sorry, in the archives. Just, you know, from my own archival research in college radio, often often you learn that a station has had similar challenges over the years. And, and so it provides that perspective that, oh, we weren't the only ones to face this challenge. And, mm-hmm. and also possibly, you know, some tips for how to get through that challenge. Yes, agreed. Well, Larry, you mentioned the trust issue, right? And, and sort of the, the most recent example is how authorities may have used uh, various documentation of the uprisings and protests we've seen in the last year uh, go after folks who might have participated or been present at, at, at protests. And is there a way in which archives can balance those sort of competing concerns or ensure that trust? where you can uh, ingest and sort of protect some of these records, which, which may indeed turn out to have great historical value, in addition to value uh, for learning about how to do things differently in the future, while perhaps allaying fears that they may be used directly to incriminate somebody in, in, in the very present tense. Right. So... We, one of the things I'm, again, so, so Project Stand, we've gotten a little bit of notoriety over the year, over the years, but the thing that has given me the most joy, and I know my, my consortial members will agree with me, is that we're starting to see this, this slow um, groundswell of students that are now reaching out to us, saying, I have records. And I want to send my records to Project Stands. <laughs> and I want you to archive those records. Or I have questions about how I should archive my records. And I have questions about how I should navigate the space with my archive at my institution. That is the, the biggest seal of approval that we're doing Um the, the work that we're, that we're trying to do to, than anything else. Um, and so I have to give um, praise to some of the students that we've been able to be in conversation with who's um, given us advice because um, we, we have formed a student advisory board and we're hearing from students like what, what are their concerns? So um, we're working to create, uh, we've created an archiving student activism toolkit. And that mm-hmm. toolkit not only speaks to the archival community, but it also speaks to the student organizers. And so we're working on creating, and we have created um, uh, 
paperwork, um, transfer forms, um, we're working on deeds of gifts. And like as our consortial members come up with ideas, we're putting that, um, we're, we're creating an online resource so that members can access, you know, what is X University doing to uh, make sure their deed of gift or transfer form is transparent, allowing students. A lot of times we, when we think of a deed of gift, that's normally reserved or has traditionally been reserved for like the alumni members <laughs> or um, it's not normally a, any real paper trail done with student orgs. And so by actually creating a specific documentation for student groups so that they can say, you know what, I would like these records restricted for X amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want, you know, we'll tell you the name of this event, but we don't want people's specific names that are in those pictures added in your metadata. Like we're giving students the agency to be able to do that. Oh, that's great. I'm. I'm, I'm really impressed that students are starting to contribute because I'm thinking back to my own student days where I wasn't necessarily thinking with an archival mindset about, you know, the work I was doing in the moment being important to save. Uh, do you think more students, particularly activists, are understanding the benefit of saving these materials? Um, for sure, because a lot of times when, when we've been truly fortunate to... Um, have in-depth, um, thoughtful conversations with students. When you ask them, they they know and they're doing their own kind of documentation and saving. It. it may not be quote unquote um, the same practices that we're giving <laughs> when we're going to high school, but they do have their own processes um, that they're engaging in, and they do think about um, their they do think about their legacy. They do think about their history. They may not understand the impact of what they're doing in that moment and, and who rarely does, who, who really does. Um, but they, they do have a process that, that they do engage in their own way um, of documenting um, what they're doing. And they're having the same questions, like how do I archive my WhatsApp meetings? <laughs> ah, yeah, good questions. Wow. They're, they actually are trying to figure that out. You know, how do you, we're, we're sitting up here, we're sending these messages to each other. And some of these messages that they're, they're in these encrypted spaces that they're, that they're trying, that they're utilizing. Like, I don't, you know, they're asking the same questions. How do I save these, how do I save these conversations? So they're having the same conversations in their spaces that we're having <laughs> as archivists. Cause some of us don't, yeah, how do you archive and what's that? So we've been talking a lot about contemporary practice as far as saving things, Lael Hughes-Watkins of Project Stand. I, I read that this overall project of Project Stand, you talk about 175 years of, of activist history. So I'm curious how far back the materials go in the Project Stand collection, as well as in the affiliate archives and, and what those materials look like 175 years ago. Um, I, oh gosh, that's a good question. I feel, I know, and I want to say it's Oberlin. Um, at least that's, that's the university that's sticking out of my mind right now. I know that they have records that they've put in their collection assessment that's, that speaks to conversations around, um, enslavement and that kind of activism that was actually taking place around that time. 
Um, and I didn't expect like records that far with those conversations to end up in projects, projects band. Because in my brain, when we first started to conceptualize what would potentially be a part of Project Stand, it really was more contemporary and maybe going as far back as the 60s and 70s. But to know that there's documentation showing some kind of um, activism and specifically around enslavement um, that goes back centuries, you know, that's that kind of, that was a moment that kind of changed the dynamic of what Project Stand the conversation that we could end up having. Yeah. What kind of, do you know what kind of materials might've been archived would have, have been pamphlets? I believe the document I'm thinking about from Oberlin, I want to say it's, it's a pamphlet or some kind of drawing showing an incident that was on campus and it was an older drawing. Um, and I want to say it's in a, in a, pamphlet style, but don't, don't quote me. I know I'm saying it, but don't quote me. <laughs> Is this like abolitionist uh, literature? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. But potentially was, was abolitionist literature, potentially. Yeah, oh, that's so it's amazing. not entirely clear because the context is not there. Is that, is that yeah. what I'm understanding? Yes, yes. Because if it was definitive abolitionist, I would build it, but I, I feel like that, that may be true, but I'm not quite, I can't quite remember mm-hmm. Um, if, that, if that's the case for the document I'm thinking about. Well, what that's the, the fascinating part, I think, about this, right, is how context does really matter um, mm-hmm. around any given artifact. And and I suspect, though certainly yeah, I think you can correct me, Lael, is that, you know, when you have more assets from a particular time, they tend to fill in the picture. But when but if you have, you know, just see solitary um, uh objects in these solitary pieces where they don't necessarily tell the whole story in and of themselves. You're really forced to try and put them in perspective and, and, and your assumptions may or may not be good. And that's, and, and that's the, the beauty and the struggle or one of the beauties and the struggle of the archives. Cause um, you know, as you get, and that's something we try to tell students when we're um, when they're engaging in research that the archives, as much as we're saying we're this space where you can come back and find these records, these artifacts, memorabilia, textual documents, images, to help you piece together a specific inquiry that you are attempting to engage in. We're also saying we're not, like the end all be all is not going to be in the archives. Um, you're, mm. You may have to source out a couple of different places. Um, it's never, it's, it's, it, it may rarely all of that information even be in one archive. You may definitely are going to have to investigate multiple archives if you have the time. Um, sometimes you have donors that will self-select and not include critical information because of the potential optics of something. Um, I'll again, go back to a personal experience. Um, I, um, my first graduate degree that I was working on at MA in English at Youngstown, little college, Youngstown State University. Um, and I was doing work on this phenomenal woman named Sam Jackson, first African-American female foreign correspondent for the Associated Negro Press. And she like covered the Harlem Renaissance on the West Coast. She 
covered Haley Selassie. She was like the only black female uh, correspondent that covered the coronation of King George VI. Um, she covered Black Hollywood. She was just an amazing, dope lady, but very little had been like historically written on her. And actually Dr. Darlene Clark Hines had written a small excerpt on her. And that was like all I had to go on <laughs> when I was trying to investigate um, her. And that was actually my first introduction, to be honest with you, to archives. I really wasn't even terribly familiar mm. um, with uh, the archives when I started to begin um, my work on her. Tell, tell, us, tell us the name of the journalist again. Faye M. Jackson. She was out, like I said, on the West Coast, so she uh, was an alum, alumni member from USC. Um, so there were some, a few records there, um, UCLA. Um, I had to go to the Huntington Library. I had to go to the Schaumburg. I was all over the place. Um, but the majority, I ended up finding out the majority of her records, and I was it was dumb luck. I got to meet her granddaughter, um, and she had the bulk of her of her grandmother's history wow. um, because of her distrust of institutions. Right. Um, right. So then all of these amazing records, like unpublished poems from Langston Hughes, um, who was like her contemporaries wow. at the time. Wow. Um, friends with Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Alice Dunbar Nelson. But um, she did... Um, Faye was a part of the LGBTQ community. And that was a very difficult conversation to have with the family member. Um, and so even as I was trying to write my thesis, I had to like self, there was a certain amount of censorship because I wasn't granted access to everything because of concern of optics of the grandmother's life. Interesting. So you knew you knew some of these details that the family was not as comfortable with. Yes, yes. Because and he, she actually shows up in Alice Dunbar Nelson's diary, um, and and you can definitely draw conclusions there that okay, they see more than friends possibly. Mm. Um, you couldn't, you know, you could, I couldn't really thoughtfully entertain that part of her life. Um, there's been times where I've dealt with donors who will tell me that they have specific records and because of concern of how that person may be viewed by the public, they're, they've told me, so I will not be giving you X, Y, and Z. And these so, are, yeah, wow, these are amazing challenges that you're sharing. Yeah. So then when you have students or faculty or, you know, whoever needs to come in and access the records, sometimes they're not getting the complete picture. And how how do you assuage people's fears if you feel like these materials really should be in the archives? Are, are there things that you can do as an archivist to obtain those materials, but also protect protect people in the way they want to be protected? Um. I, that that's really hard. I feel like it has to. It, there is only time. There was someone that I, an amazing woman um, that I was working with at Kent, when I was at Kent State University, um, and she documented the history of this um, black community that wasn't too far 
from Kent State, it didn't have, that community didn't have running water or a sewage system, like all the way up into the 70s, like it's ridiculous. Um, and so, but then like Kent State students would come down and help tutor and help clean, um, you know, pick up trash because, because they didn't have running water or sewage, people would just dump stuff like a garbage, a garbage dump. They treated that community that way. So um, this, the Kent State, many of the Kent State students from specific student organizations, uh, Black fraternities and sororities would come down and help keep the area clean. And like I said, help tutor students and put on programming. And she had like documented all this amazing history and development of that community over, over decades and their relationship with Kent State. Um, but it took the whole five years <laughs> that I was at Kent State before she finally signed the Dita gift to let me bring that collection in. And even then, like I could only get a box here and a box here. And and I got very close with her. I mean, I had I checked in on her. We I had conversations. I would just call her and just see how she's doing. I mean, you have to show that she, that that you're not just there to take. You have to show that you're there and that you care. Yeah. It- I mean, I'm really, I'm really moved by all these stories you're sharing about how you've come to appreciate the importance of, of archiving the stories of these historically marginalized communities, you know, both on campus and, you know, and also in, um, you know, your other work where you were doing your thesis project about an important writer that people need to know about. So maybe talk a bit more about, about Project Stand and, and the marginalized communities that, are a part of the collection and maybe some of the interesting materials that people are contributing already. Um, one of the things that I'm excited about and see how this is going to unfold, there's a group of really cool people um, at New York. Some of, in New York, some of them are somewhat recent graduates from New York State University, and they're terribly interested in archiving DISOs, otherwise known as disorientation um, publications. And the DISOs um, are like the anti-orientation publications for for universities and colleges. You know, usually you get that nice shiny orientation talking about how great our college or university is and the amazing experiences you're gonna have and all the wonderful things that, that exist, the programs and the activities that you'll get to be involved in. But the DISLs historically were created and are actually con- continue to be um, created and printed. So so it's like an underground newspaper for orientation. Yeah. Is that- <laughs> yeah, they they called it the disorientation. That might- yeah, disorientation. And that they- is that's hilarious. I had no idea about this. Yeah, I just learned about this like I think it was last maybe 2019 when I first heard of it, but I really started to learn about it in 2020. And I was like, this is a thing. And I'm finding UMD has has some as well. Like, and this is all over, all over the country that a lot of colleges and universities were doing this and have been doing them for a really long time. And so, yeah, because this this would be a this would be a time where you know new students are coming to campus. They're getting the slick materials that the campus wants to provide them about you know where to eat and where to sleep and how to mm-hmm. behave. And then activist communities on the campus can hand out their own literature that's like this is where we organize. This is where you shouldn't eat. <laughs> like th- this is this is what's really going on here in your, our campus community. Yes, these these are things we've had to fight for. These are things that we're having issues with with the administration and blah, blah, blah. So um, 
they're very interested in seeing how they can centralize access to the distos that have been digitized or born digital that's online. Um, and so they're very interested in context. Like, okay, well, if we do this project, um, if we take them out of their, if we take them out of their current um, space online, will they lose the context if we centralize that content with other disorientations that's from around? Oh, interesting. Yes, they're very interested. They're very, they really want to, they really want to be methodical and thoughtful about it. They're, they're very interested in the metadata. They're interested in the legal concerns. Um, well, right now, these disos aren't easily discoverable. But um, if we put them in this centralized place and help with their discoverability, does that harm um, the folks that put these together? I mean, they have some very thoughtful questions and, and conversations and they're like we really want to do this but we want to do this right and like can y'all help us figure out how to do this so we're going to try to figure out how to do this together and so i'm very that's one project that we're very excited uh, to see how it's going um to unfold um and then we've been slowly trying to build building a relationship with um the folks who are part of the amherst uprising um, and so we're, we're trying to see um, how that uh, relationship is going to look like um, in the future. Um, Can you talk more about what, what is the Amherst Uprising? So that was 2015 when the Amherst Uprising um, occurred. Um, generally, they were struggling with a lot of the same issues that have been classic at some of the other um, PWIs issues of discrimination, um, uh, issues of feeling uh, isolated and not being heard by administration. Um, you had, I think this was also around um, the Mizzou or University of Missouri um, um, protest um, as well, and them showing support um, for what was taking place there. Um, and so students, again, going to the administration, asking for conversations, feeling that they're being unheard, and that these that uh, this uprising occurred over a significant period of time. And there's these amazing images of them having conversations with the administration. But again, we're in the we're in the early stages and we're hoping that we can be a possible um, repository for that for that collection. Um, and so we're going to see again how that where that goes. When we first started Project Stand, we we thought it was a possibility that people, instead of just also highlighting what we currently have within our holdings, that it was possible that people would want to reach out to us and deposit collections that's not currently affiliated with a specific institution. And how are we going to handle that? And we thought we were going to have a little bit of time before we really. Um, had to begin to think about it. But now, because we've gotten so many requests, we've gotten requests for oral histories to be donated um, to Project Stand. It was a graduate student um, project, and it was talking about students and their experience as Middle Easterners um, in the U.S. Um, so, I mean, it's it's been a diversity of, of institutions from student projects to whole collections um, from student groups, from specific student groups that have been reaching out to us and 
we're having to really figure out how we can be there and be supportive um, of the of the student organizations. Like, have you reached out to your college and university and you just feel like that's not what you want to do and you feel that this is more appropriate or you still would like to reach out to your college and university and you just haven't started the steps. So we just want to make sure that the choices that they're making, that's what their, what their intentions are and making sure we work through that process um, with them. And is, is there much, you mentioned at the beginning that maybe there's not a whole lot of audio. Is there much audio or radio student radio content that you've come across so far in the collections? Um, with the collection assessments, not a lot, not a lot. And I don't, and that's not to say, I mean, the thing that's also as challenging with archives, you could sit there and you could have five cubic feet of AV material and not done a proper inventory and may not even know that it's there. <laughs> um, so that's not to say that the institutions that are currently supporting that there may be additional, that there may be AV content that they're not aware of. I mean, and that's one of the challenges, you know, not everyone is lucky to have a really sizable um, staff. And so we all experience the challenges of getting through our backlogs. Um, and so sometimes we don't always, we're not always immediately aware um, of the records that we have until we get to those, until we get to those records, or someone says, you know, I know that you should have some kind of AV from from this particular period. Can you check? And then you have a specific reference request that's come in that allows you to uncover um, AV material that you had from 1962 that you were unaware of. So um, that can also be a problem too, just that you're not aware of everything that's in your in your inventory. What kind of, can you characterize your AV material? Like what is it, is it dominated primarily by say still photos? Are there a lot of filmic or video motion picture or video in there? What, what, what seems to be the predominant uh, medium in, in, in amongst the audiovisual stuff? Um, so mostly, mostly stills. Um, and then we, when, when I think about audio, um, it can be real, real to real, um, which is even more challenging because then you have to get that digitized to even be able to fully know mm-hmm. on it um, or to, to listen to it. So, but a lot of it is um, stills and real to real with respect to what the collection assessments are showing. And, and do you suspect that stills? are are so um, common because on the one hand, there are student newspapers, which seems to be one of the most common sorts of student media and, and, you know, photos are, are, you know, very important part of newspapering. And as well, it's the kind of thing they probably just would, the the standard practice is to hold on to it. It, The, 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 the production of newspaper tends to be a less ephemeral process than radio, which, which is often live and unrecorded. Do do you suspect that that's one reason or are the photos coming from, from the organizations themselves? Because again, it's a fairly has, has long been a very approachable um, people's medium. That's a good question. Um, I can I can speak definitely at UMD. Like we have a sizable collection of photographs um, that have come from our dining back, from our student newspaper. We have thousands of, of images. Um, so a lot of our photograph uh, 
images are going to are coming are stemming from the student from the student newspaper, um, and and I would submit that's probably that's true for a lot of um, of the records that we're seeing highlighted in Project Stand. But then you also have um, different offices and centers um, that have. Um, recorded specific activities and events that's connected with their particular space on campus. So I, I would say that student newspapers play a significant role in those stills, but you also have offices, different offices and centers. And I would say student groups are like at the bottom for um, if there's any images. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, concerned. that lines up with my experience. I mean, I, I worked in... Um, in university media for many years. Uh, and um, I worked as well as a college radio advisor. And even, you know, though my experience was in the, um, you know, 2000s primarily, you know, it seemed pretty common to me that even, you know, in the in the just early pre-digital age and in the digital age, it was very common for, for all sorts of offices or even departments to have photography and sometimes somebody uh, documenting, uh, you know, almost like as reportage, like a press office, uh, events and things like this, but, but, um, you know, it seemed like video or audio did not, uh, become particularly common until later until really until like, I think in the last, uh, 12 years or so, uh, which of course presents its own issues, uh, especially now that we're in kind of the post tape and post physical <laughs> media, um, uh, time right it, even because even 15 years ago or 10 years ago someone might have been recording to a physical videotape or something like that or uh, and now it's it's all kind of uh, just on a hard drive somewhere and you're right and I and and I can't say it's 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 across all institutions however I do feel there's a significant amount of records for some random reason that if we do have video, um, of say a, say a campus demonstration, it's coming around from the, the 60s, 70s, maybe early 80s era. But it's like when we're more regularly using um, VHS tape, it is very hard to find a lot of that kind of student life captured on VHS tape for the holding yeah. desk part of Project Stand. I don't want to talk about everybody and how everybody but for the ones that's a part of Project Stand, I haven't. It, it seems like it's mostly with the with the older legacy formats for a hot for recording. Like I said, with real to real, but not when it comes to VHS tapes. That it's very little that's that's been documented. With Leo, yeah. I'm, I'm curious because I'm imagining some of that material is out there. Or at Project Stand, are you doing? Is there an effort to encourage? encourage people who might have this material to contact you. I'm even thinking of, of college radio station archives. Like if they knew that you were looking in particular for audio and visual material related to campus activism, they might be able to, you know, pull things from their collections to send in, or maybe people have things in their personal archives in their attics and basements. Uh, Cause yeah. I would imagine there would be videos out there, right? Yeah. I think it's, and I think you're right. I think you you hit a very good point there. I think because it's VHS, I think it's more likely that people are still holding on to that particular format and haven't released it yet. Like, I think it's more likely not that it just doesn't exist. I just think people that that format hasn't been routinely donated yet. 
And so therefore it's not in our, in our holdings. And I do think there's um, like, we've started early conversations trying to get people to think about like, what is in your, um, for those of us who have had, have had a long history with um, having our student, student radio at our um, institutions, like, are you actively a part of conversations trying to get um, those uh, files or VHS, or not VHS, trying to get those files um, transferred to to your institution? Um, I know that Maryland has done a really good job trying to archive WMUC, but again, because a lot of the content that we have needs to be sent out to be digitized, it's just not easily um, accessible right now. We are working with um, the current staff that's with the student radio um, with respect to how do we make accessible those files that's now completely digital. Like how do how do we archive that and then be able to make it accessible to the public? Um, and we're trying to come up with a protocol um, for that. What I really like is that that Project Stand has this whole topic focus of activism because I think some of these other collections might be might feel sort of overwhelming maybe to people. Uh, but I like that idea of of looking for these particular moments related to activism and 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 so with that said, if if people do have this material, if they have material related to student activism, how can they? How can they get in touch with you? How you know? Can they contribute to Project Stand? Um, they are welcome to go to our website, and we have a um, email that they can reach us at, um, but it's standarchives.com. And so there's a um, contact form that uh, folks can reach out to. And, and we can start a conversation about uh, the materials that, that they have. I also wanted to ask you about the podcast you're doing. The podcast, if you were in Project Stand, you would be like, finally, Lail gets to do this podcast. <laughs> I've been wanting to do a podcast for Project Stand forever. Um, and so the podcast is... What's out now is like our slows or soft rollout um, for our podcast. We really want to do a formal rollout this year, but we started to, to to do some work last year. But the podcast, we're calling it a blueprint. And uh, the goal of that podcast is to, um, just as we think about the overall umbrella and, and goals and objectives of Project Stand, again, having, being in conversation um, with student organizers, with um, archivists and memory workers, with historians, um, and everyone in between that intersects with the documentation um, of student activism. And again, with traditionally um, vulnerable or marginalized identities. And so these first couple of interviews that we've done, we focused on um, students and then what we're trying to do is the students that we interview, that they turn around and get to be the narrator, the interviewer. And so then they'll get to come back on and, and have these inter, hopefully intergenerational conversations, um, but also be able to have conversations with um, archivists and memory workers and their processes 
uh, for documenting student groups and challenges and trying to have really organic conversations um, with each other. Um, some of the times we are we're having conversations with historians who are frustrated <laughs> by the gaps um, in the archival record and being able to be in conversation um, with communities who we don't always get, we don't always get to to discuss the challenges. All they're seeing is like the end product and what's missing. But like, allow historians to be in conversation with with archivists to say here um, are the challenges that we're having with documenting this particular period or this particular uh, movement um, in time, um, and also allowing historians to speak with um, student organizers and having an exchange. So I'm like really. Exciting. We're, we're saying a blueprint because um, it is in, <laughs> excuse me, in honor of our uh, panel that we had at Chicago State University, where one of the student um, panelists said he filled, he said it much more eloquent than I, but he basically feels that the archive should be a blueprint, a blueprint of what students need to do. Um, they should be able to go back in, in into the into the record and find out who are the people that um, help who were critical to advancing um, particular um, concerns on campus and having them addressed. And as I mentioned earlier, um, what were the the best tactics to use to get the administration's um, attention? Um, who were their forefathers and foremothers um, who were there early? Um, in the organizing process and, and really said that the archive should be, should be the blueprint. So this is in honor of that uh, panel at Chicago State University. That sounds great. Well, Lael Hughes-Watkins, thanks so much for talking to us today about Project Stand. My thanks to our guest today on Radio Survivor, Lael Hughes-Watkins of Project STAND, which stands for Student Activism Now Documented. It's an archive of student activism on campuses. To find out more, you can visit the show notes for today's episode of Radio Survivor online at radiosurvivor.com. We are a podcast as well as a radio program, and you can subscribe to this wherever you get your time-shifted radio. We are we, we come to you every week for the love of radio and sound and community, audio and podcasts and college radio and history, the history of this medium. You can email us. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We are a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To find out more, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. On behalf of Jennifer Waits, who produced today's episode, and Paul Reismandel, my name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>